0: This song is not a rebel song. Shall
1: we play
2: a game? I am Sammy Terry.
3: Many students were killed.
4: Feel right now, angry. I'm very angry. He will rather the poor were
0: poorer, yeah, yeah, yeah. provided the rich were less rich.
3: naughty! we like the party. Automobile. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Oh, Rick, to think that I may never see you again. I think you did it on purpose, because you know I've got a runny bottom. I'm Kurt Loder, this is MTV News. Justine, Justine! But oh, this is Miami, pal. I'm not gonna <laughs> Let's have a Play-Doh party. Yeah! yeah. Now uh, show
4: me wax on, wax off. Welcome to another 1980s edition of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. In spite of this being an episode of the optimistically titled Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, the 1980s had its share of humans acting like jerks. Pride, prejudice, tribalism, selfishness, envy, and cruelty all had its hold on the human heart during our favorite decade as much as any other. So today we're going to hear some of the specific slices of people's not-so-pleasant memories of the 80s, ranging from the humorously petty to the seriously deadly. We will battle a bully with some conjecture about his mother, take a trip to a southern Mexican paradise ruined by politics, stand in line for food in Eastern Europe, and hear about the separated Polish couple U2's Bono felt enough affinity for to write a song about. But first, how a rivalry between two rural Indiana towns reached its zenith in a breakdance battle.
2: And the hip hop back then is so much different than today. You know, back then it was like Run DMC and the Fat Boys. Oh, yeah. I know me and you used to love listening to the Fat Boys. Absolutely, yeah.
1: Prince <laughs>
2: and uh, the Beastie Boys, you know, it was fun rap. Yeah. You know, they talked about partying or their their new sneakers, you know. Well, whether, being overweight. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, especially the Fat Boys, yeah, their song was about eating something. But, yeah, you know, it wasn't like this gangster, you know, bullets and bitches kind of rap. And breakdancing, of course, was huge. And the thing about breakdancing is everybody, nobody wants to admit it nowadays, but everybody tried to breakdance. Everybody tried to do the worm, they'd get on their living room floor <laughs> with their little boombox. And boombox, if anybody does not know what that was, was basically a portable cassette player with like big bass speakers. And it ate like eight batteries every four hours. It Was it D batteries? Yeah, a D batteries. So you basically had to run to the store like every two days and buy like a 24 pack of batteries to play your music. But you had that big boom box. You'd always see these people walking around town carrying like big pieces of cardboard. And you're like, oh, yeah, they're really into recycling. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, really what it was is you had to have that piece of cardboard with you at all times because you never knew when a breakdance battle was going to break out. You know, and You had to lay it down and just throw your moves out there. So you're always lugging that piece of cardboard around with you. <laughs> Did you try breakdancing? Oh, I tried. Sure, I was never any good at it. Uh-huh. Basically, I just broke things around the house. Is what my ideal of breakdancing was. But uh, I like to call this one the Great Warwick County Breakdance Battle of 1984. All right. Okay, this is a true story. This actually happened. Of course, like every small community, we have our county 4-H fairs in the summer, right? So it was 1984, and uh, there was a local fitness center And they had a little tent set up and they were just giving like classes or showing demonstrations and stuff, trying to drum up business during the fair, right? And uh, so they have like some aerobic instructors out there dancing around with some aerobics, showing some moves and stuff. And then, as fate would have it, they also sponsored a breakdance group from our rival town of Newburgh. Oh, man. Now, anybody who's listening to this from Boonville knows Newburgh and Boonville hates each other. Basically... The short story is, Newburgh is where all the rich, perfect kids were from, and Boonville's the more redneck right. country kids, uh-huh. for the most part. So, obviously, there's not a lot of friendship there. So, you got this breakdance group from Newburgh <laughs> on our turf, right? <laughs> Think about this. They're at, they're at our county fair right. around our chickens and cows, and they're showing their breakdance. The <laughs> I was maybe, what, 12, 13? Mm. So, we were junior high age. The high school kids from Boonville... There was a group of high schoolers that were big break dancers. Uh, Bobby Miller, uh, Junior Heck, name a few of them. But the leader of the group was P.J. Dockery. He was like my idol at the time. He was like a senior. I work with him now today at at, at, uh, Toyota. And I still tell him this story. He doesn't remember, but I tell (laughs) it to him all the time. So I'm sitting here watching these guys from Newburgh break dancing. And they're pretty good. And for a 12-year-old, I was entertained. And then all of a sudden, I start looking around the crowd of people watching them and I noticed it's the Boonville breakdance crew. I walk over by them and, and I can tell they're not happy. They're like, man, we need to get out there and breakdance. We have to battle these guys here. <laughs> and to this day, I remember, uh, I think it was Junior turned to Bobby and he said, no, we have to wait till PJ gets here. <laughs> 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 that guy was busting that laughing. so PJ finally gets there. And the New Bern guys are out there popping and locking and they're spinning and they're showing all their stuff. And the Boomba guys just jump out of the crowd and they start popping and locking back up. And they're up in their face and they're doing the cross chop and everything. <laughs> and a fist fight breaks out at the Warwick County Fair. Whoa. The Great Breakdance Battle of 1984. <laughs> I mean, there's people running, screaming. Police are coming around. Chickens are flying. I, I am laughing my butt off. I was there. It's a true historical fact and mm-hmm. I witnessed it. Wow. Who won the fight? Um, I, I would have to say us. So, yeah. You know, it was broke up before it got yeah. too bad. We got more brawn, for sure. Yeah, well, you know, big farm boys. Yeah. I know they got a couple of good shots in before the police broke it up.
4: <laughs> Speaking for myself, my concept of Mexico was exclusively informed by the Saturday morning music videos of pop boy band Menudo dancing and crooning around the scenic parts of our North American neighbor. But my next guest shares at least his reality of being a child and teenager in Mexico in the 1980s. So you're from uh, the state of Chiapas in southern Mexico, and there was quite a bit of conflict down there during that time.
1: There was always a conflict down there, and there were several types of conflict, uh-huh. uh, let me say that. You know, there was conflicts between what the Indians down there called white people, which mm-hmm. were people that were not Indian. Mm-hmm. And there was also conflict between each group of Indians. They had their villages and their cities and up in the mountains, yeah. up in the highlands.
4: So when you say white people, you mean Hispanics that were yeah, descended the, from Spain? Or, or
1: Yeah, or they would call like people that had married, yeah, or Spaniards, they would call them mestizos. They themselves made a differentiation between people like them, if like their Chamula, Chol, or Tojolaval. Compared to people that were of mixed race with Spaniard blood, a mm. Spaniard descent. Okay, yeah. so there, there was always that conflict, and you know there was also a little bit of conflict in, in you know, in the 70s and the 80s, and some in the 60s too, but mostly in the 70s and the 80s, there was a lot of uh, religious groups that were going up there to the jungle. Mm-hmm. But there, this state is very rural and it's very hard to get to, to some areas. Mm-hmm. And it still is, it's getting better now, but it was very, very heavy influenced by Catholic Church and they started other like Protestants, Baptists would go. And, and sometimes if they went to some areas up in the jungle, like the Lacando like the jungle, they'd get killed just because they were trying to bring another religion. So the Indians had converted to Catholicism? The majority of them, yes.
4: Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. They didn't want to hear anything else. And, and
1: part of it was influenced by the church and part of it by their beliefs. Because, you know, the, the Protestant religion would come and tell them there's only one God. And uh-huh. That's it. If you're not with one God, you're wrong. You're going to hell. Yeah. And, you know, in their previous religion, when they there was no Spaniards, they had a bunch of deities. Mm-hmm. And then when the Catholics came in, they still had one God. But they had all these other... Demigods. Yeah, demigods yeah. And, you know that they could pray to. So, so the was,
4: Protestants weren't
1: into synchronism. No. Yeah. They, they weren't into, it's either this or you're not uh-huh. part of it. Okay. So there was that conflict. And there was always castes within themselves and within the, the people of Spaniard descent. For example, within our city, there were people that were considered themselves European because they were still pure blood descendants of pure European families. Mm-hmm. And then there was the other families that were, you know, mixed families. They had either some kind of Indian blood or Spaniard blood mixed with something mm-hmm. else. So mm-hmm. it wasn't something you could brag about? No, I don't think so. Here, here, like, everybody wants to have a yeah, Indian blood. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it, yeah. There, it was the opposite. Okay. And even within their groups, there were certain hierarchies in their groups, you know. these group of Indians were a little better than these groups of Indians, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So there, there was those conflicts all the time. Mm-hmm. So there was always conflicts between the Indians and what they call the mestizos, or the white people. And it came to the violence? There was always violence down there. Uh, you would always see the, the government, the army would come in, mm-hmm. and they would eradicate little villages. They were having uprisings. Mm-hmm. There were some villages up in the highlands that there was no men in it. It was just women and children. All the men were gone. Nobody knew where they went.
4: Really? Yeah. What was
1: the conspiracy theories? Well, the the conspiracy and the consensus was that the, uh, the military would come down and quell the rebellion mm-hmm. and just bury them somewhere after Whoa. they get killed. The government? Yeah, the government. Wow. And then in the 80s, during the Contra, mm-hmm. Iran-Contra, a lot of the terrorists, a lot of the governments that the U.S. was helping under the table mm-hmm. in Central America would come to the highlands in Chiapas and stay up in the mountains and rest, Uh and train, and then they would go back. So we had a lot of that going on, too. Okay. Um, I remember when I was growing up, uh, you know, once in a while you would see like a pickup truck come into town, and there'd be a bunch of guys in the back with blankets, because it's cold up in the mountains, Mm -hmm. with blankets, and you'd see the top of their rifles, and these guys were blonde, blue eyes with beards. Wow. So we knew they weren't Mexicans, (coughs) Right. (laughs) so, I mean, It was probably CIA or Mm -hmm. some kind of army special unit helping up there train Mm -hmm. the the guerrillas from Central America.
2: (laughs) And
5: then,
1: you know, the big conflict came into late 80s, probably 87, somewhere around there, when the actual Indians in the area revolutionized and got together, and they basically started fighting the Mexican government Mm -hmm. and Mexican cities, and that's when we left Mexico. My dad was heavily involved in in politics, so he knew of all this stuff that was going on, and they started taking land from wealthy owners in the outskirts, and eventually they came into town and they seized the town and they burned the city hall. Of course, they didn't burn the building because the buildings were very strong. They were built in the 1500s, 1600s. They're made out of good adobe but they burn everything inside, mm-hmm. you know. And Were these the Zapatistas? The Zapatistas, uh-huh. yeah. And they kidnapped a lot of the wealthy landowners mm-hmm. and some of them were let go free after they gave their land back to the Indians. Some of them were just disappeared. A lot of change happened in the late 80s, early 90s with the Zapatistas. And up to this day, they're having a lot of conflict down there, you right. still have a lot of pocket of resistance.
4: Right. What I understand somewhat from your sister and other sources is that the Zapatistas were often like any kind of revolutionary force where maybe they had good intentions initially, but they end up becoming the the problem. Anybody that disagreed with them, even with their own own ranks, would be
1: dead or in trouble. Well, the problem with the Zapatistas was that they had good intentions. They were going after the right thing. They'd been oppressed by the government for so long. And basically what would happen is the government would promise them a lot of stuff, you know, electricity, running water, mm-hmm. roads, and this and that for their boat, Okay, mm-hmm. It never happened. Or if, if the government gave the money, the money was funneled to something else.
4: And by government, what, what's so, the party?
1: Uh, uh, the PRI. P- PRI? P- PRI. Yeah, PRI. yeah. Uh, And it was very strong, you know. And they've been in power for what? Uh, they've been in power for 60 yeah. years, something like that. Right. An awful long time. Right. So, you know, the Indians started rebelling that and they wanted their stuff back. Mm-hmm. You know, the Indians, when they rebelled, they wanted a good thing. Mm-hmm. And the problem was that within their ranks, there was not good visionaries and there was no command. Mm-hmm. There was no plan as to what are we going to do after we take this city? Mm-hmm. Well, nobody knows how to run a city. So, you know, they would come down, they would burn, they would loot, they would take stuff, and they'd go back up to the mountains. So they didn't really take possession and run the city like, or the parts of the government they wanted. What they were looking for is they wanted just a small piece of land. And that happens a lot with a lot of revolutions. They don't look at the big picture. Everybody wants what what they think it's owed to them. So for example, when they started taking a lot of land from wealthy owners, you know, they would subdivide it. Well, they didn't know how to farm it or they didn't know how to raise the cattle. So all that just went away. Mm because they didn't know how to take care so of it. So that hurt the area. It hurt the area quite a bit. I think the only thing that that area has that is very good for the area is tourism. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very beautiful state. A lot of natural resources, you know, hiking, mm-hmm. parks, rivers, caverns. And, and it's just, safe? And it, It's relatively safe. I think it's safe like anywhere else. Mm-hmm. If you're at 2 o'clock in the morning in the back part of town, I don't care where you are, you're probably not a good mm-hmm. position. But tourist-wise, they they understand down there that tourists are, it's money for them, Mm -hmm. and it's how they live. Sure. So they they try to cater a little bit more to
0: tourists.
4: Another conflict, I I remember complaining to your sister about the teachers' unions here in the United States, they can be a little thuggish, like if you don't go along with the leadership, then they can, you know, they'll make it painful on you, so to speak. But in a metaphorical way, not a physical way. But again, Grace said, well,
1: you should see the teachers' unions down in Mexico. And right now they're having a lot of problems with teachers' unions. But when I lived down there, teachers' unions and higher education has always been very, very heavily influenced by socialist uh-huh. ideas. Sure. And I remember when we were kids, uh, you know how up here in high school you have, you know, class president and class secretary, you had little election stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, down there we had parties. We had the red party and the black party. Wow. E- so, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, each party had his own nominees and uh-huh. pretty much for a whole week, nobody went to school because all we did was just loiter around the school. And then the day of the election, everybody brought would bring flour and eggs and threw flour and eggs at each other. And Was boom. it supposed to be fun? Kind of fun uh-huh. and, you know, kind of like relaxing. And then the teachers' unions, they would abuse the system of, of education. You know, teachers would teach like at four different schools at the same time every day. So they couldn't be at all schools, but they were still getting paid on all schools. Oh, wow. So they would go in and they would sign in the roster that they were there, mm-hmm. and then they would leave and go to the other school. And every year it didn't matter. Sometimes the students would have a strike, mm-hmm. which it's kind of unheard of anywhere else. Right. And they would just not go to school, or the teachers would have a strike. So <laughs> I would say out of the whole year... There was maybe, I don't know, five months of actual school. The rest of the time it was between student striking or teacher striking. It was pretty much routine every year the teacher strike.
4: And she was telling me that your father ended
1: up becoming a target of the teacher's union. He did (laughs) because my dad was very strict in a certain sense and he, he just didn't think that we're wasting all this time and not teaching these kids anything. And he taught at the law school and he also taught at the high school where we attended to. And he saw how a lot of the teachers would just not come and teach anything. Mm -hmm. Some teachers would come into the classroom and sit at the desk and just sit there and do nothing for the whole hour. The school system down there was a little different. The students stayed in one classroom, and the teachers came and went. Oh, okay. And then there was the night school, and there was the same system. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a perfect example. I had an English teacher. He was a little old man. We used to call him the the TAC. The TAC? The TAC. He was a little (laughs) short, and he learned English in World War II. He was a correspondent for a Mexican newspaper in in the war. So he was embedded with some U.S. forces, and he learned some English. So every day he would come in, and he would write like 10 sentences on the board. And all we had to do was copy them in our paper, and then at the end of the month, we'd turn it in, and he'd check them, and we'd get our grade. Well, he got real sick, so he couldn't come teach us anymore because he was very old. So his son started coming in in his place. Mm -hmm. He was not a teacher. (laughs) He was not employed by the school, but he started coming in and he started getting his dad's check. So, I mean, it it was just, it was very, very unorganized and corrupt. And my dad really didn't like that. So he would always be, you know, when they would have their meetings, he would always pretty much go against it. Like, well, look, yeah, but look what you're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, type of thing.
4: She said also you guys had to start walking everywhere. You couldn't use cars anymore.
1: We couldn't. There for a while, right before the Zapatistas took over and there were some some more conflicts, they found several people underneath our vehicles and the army would come and grab them and take them to their base and they would check them out make sure there was no bombs or anything. Mm -hmm. And after a while, we just quit driving.
4: You don't know who? who? It
1: was just, I mean, the people that would be under the cars, you'd go there, what are you doing? Oh, uh, I dropped something under your car. But you don't know we, who they were from? No, we don't know who they were from. and So we didn't know if... You know, my dad was very heavily involved in politics. So he had a lot of enemies. Yeah, yeah. and just by being... Virtue of being one party or the other party, uh-huh. you know, you don't really need to make enemies. You're just right. part of this party, you're against that party.
5: Did
1: you ever see me violence? Yeah, yeah, there was, there was quite a bit of violence. I, I remember going to Chamula a couple of times with my dad when they would have uh, voting rallies, and they actually pretty much basically just get people to go and vote a certain way, okay? And, you know, they would get fights. They all carry machetes because that's their work tool mm-hmm. that they use to cut corn or whatever, or grass, or whatever they're doing. Yeah, They all carry big machetes. And I'm not talking, you know, little 14-inch. I'm talking about, you know, 45-inch machetes, big machetes, so they're always cutting each other up. But I remember one time, uh, there was a big political rally in town <clears throat> and my dad came home and he was covered in blood and was like, what happened? Well there was a shooting, they were having like a political rally and the rivals came in and they started shooting each other. And uh, one of the main candidates got shot and they took him to the hospital. And they were doing surgery, in the middle of surgery all of a sudden the electricity goes out for the hospital, oh, on no. purpose. Oh no. Yeah. So there was a lot of rivalry. There was a lot of violence between political parties. And back then, there were basically two political parties, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of political parties, and then at election time, they all come together into two. A coalition, yeah. Yeah. It kind of makes uh,
4: Democrats and Republicans look like a bunch of pansies. Oh, Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: Place to go visit. Which,
4: you know, <laughs> yeah, the, you're really yeah. selling it,
1: man. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, it's a very beautiful town. Okay. If, if anybody ever gets a chance, you know, just, Google San Cristóbal de las uh-huh. Casas and look at the pictures, look at the picture of the people. Uh-huh. People are beautiful. You know, it's, it's just, it, it's become very commercialized and sure. very tourist oriented, mm-hmm. but it's still a very, very beautiful city. Okay.
4: Ever since its violent births in 1917, communism was praised by intellectuals living in the free democratic countries as, quote, the future, and it works, unquote. But for those who lived under the boots of the variety of Marxist dictatorships, it was an altogether different story. The 1980s would be the last decade for the crumbling Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and its puppet states, and our next guest got to get a couple peeks behind the notorious Iron Curtain just a few years before it unraveled.
5: I was in the Air Force, the United States Air Force, and for three years, uh, from about 1978 until the the early 80s, I was stationed in Europe at at, at base in England, it was called RAF Mildenhall because we couldn't have a United States Air Force Base in England. We could only be part of a Royal Air Force Base, but 99% of the people there were United States, and so it was a Royal Air Force Base pretty much in, in name only, and, and politically, and there were also many of my military associates, people who were also in the service at the time that I was, who were stationed in Germany, and it was, it was definitely part of the Cold War. There were many bases that were along western Germany Germany was split West Germany and East Germany and I did take a trip a couple trips with my father who was born in Poland while I was in England and we went through Germany and over to Poland to see family there and it was such a dramatic difference between the west and eastern sides even in Berlin I had a what's called a TDY a temporary duty to Berlin, and while I was in Berlin, we were instructed you couldn't walk around in civilian clothes. You had to wear your uniform really? because you were representing the mm-hmm. Air Force. They didn't want to say that anything was, was subterfuge, mm-hmm. and we did have a brief trip across from West Berlin to East Berlin, dramatic difference. It wasn't just a, a case of, of different signs or different colors, it was mm-hmm. the entire economy was different. It was like going from a wealthy nation to an impoverished nation
0: Mm.
5: when so many people on the eastern side were trying to get over to the western side because they didn't want to live under those conditions on the eastern side. Uh, People would dig tunnels with their bare hands, try to fit themselves inside of suitcases so they could be carried across. And when we went across from the western to the eastern side, we were all on a bus and we were given very clear instructions, saying we're going to go through a checkpoint. I don't remember if it was Checkpoint Charlie, but it right. might have been Checkpoint Charlie. And they said, these guards do not have a sense of humor. <laughs> do not joke. Right. Do not say, oh yeah, I got something in my bag," because they'll just turn us around. Right. They, they won't let you in. So be very serious, be very professional. And that's that's what the way we were as we mm-hmm. went through the checkpoint. That's the way we were when we were on the other side. In, in Poland, Um, when my father and I were there. It continued that sense of this is a very, very poor and repressed country. Mm -hmm. I had wanted to see the Russian border. I'd never been to Russia. Mm -hmm. And my family was like, no, 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 don't don't go, don't go. And they took us to within about a mile of the border and said, the border's over there, but we're not going to go over there. Even with that, the next day, my cousin's car was pulled over by police. Why were you so close to the border? And food was difficult Mm -hmm. to get a hold of. Each time my father and I would arrive in one of the towns where we had different cousins uh, usually the mother of the family would send out all her children to go look for meat to see if they could find a single store that had meat in it. And if they found, or if two came back, then great, you know, Mm -hmm. we'd eat well. But that was how they wanted to take care of the Did it make you feel
4: bad a little bit that they took all this trouble?
5: It did, and when I went back for Christmas, I brought two suitcases and one had my clothes in it and the other was full of food. I brought canned hams Mm. and chocolates and Mm -hmm. all kinds of different things because I didn't want them to have to to go through that. It really brought home to me how good we have it in America. Mm that we have such easy access to so many things. Every time, every time I turn on a faucet, I am aware that running water is not a Mm-mm. common element of existence on the planet. Yeah. Every time I turn on a light switch, I am thankful that I am living in a <laughs> place <comes> <laughs> that I have easy access to electricity. So I'm kind of getting away from the Cold War and oh, we're fun. just talking about the separation mm-hmm. of you know, finances and, and the haves and the have-nots.
4: But I think that illustrates how Marxism had promised this utopia, and you get, when they end up getting something much worse than what they had had before. Right.
5: Now, my father and I visited areas in southern Poland, near Zakopane, which is where the party leadership had homes. And there were the vacation homes, ah. and, and that was where the, the higher end lifestyles were. Right. Um, the
4: pigs in Orwell's <laughs> Animal so, Farm. So, yeah. Uh,
5: but, so the money was there, but it got funneled into a, a very small uh, section of the population. to the flag, whatever flag they offer. Never what you really feel. You would also see it in just everywhere in the stores like if you needed to buy something people were very aware of quotas and if they need to go to the store they would look at the shelf and I, I'm sorry you can't see my hands but they would look at the shelf and they would see when was this made in a month and they would try to purchase something that was made in the first half of the month and not in the second half of the month why? because there were quotas and if something was done in the first half of the month it was more likely done to a certain level of quality. Mm. If it was done in the second half of the month it meant that they were just trying to get things out very quickly in order to meet their numbers and so the population knew don't buy anything made in the second half or the last wow. 10 days of the month because it was likely lower quality. And that was also part of the uh, lifestyle in that if everyone's being paid, everyone's being paid the same amount, is that going to lead towards a better lifestyle? And the people would say you stand up, you sit down, you get paid the same. So why should they work harder, of course? Yeah. You stand up, you sit down, yeah. you get paid the same. So <laughs> it it struck me that people need to have some sense of if I work harder, I'm going to get some benefit from it. Mm-hmm. That that is what humans as a race, mm-hmm. that's the natural order of things, is that people want to think that they can have a better life for themselves, a better life for their children. If they're living somewhere where everybody's getting paid the same, it doesn't mean that everybody's happy, it means that everyone's kind of at the same level of lower unhappiness. <laughs> right, right. Was,
4: the misery yeah. is equal.
5: Or I'd look at, at the buildings and I'd see a tall building, an apartment building that was Hundreds of different windows, and it, it looked like this amazing building. And then and then I noticed that in every single one of those windows was a Christmas tree. And what did that tell me? Every single one of those windows was a different apartment. Hundreds and hundreds of tiny, tiny apartments, each of which had one window, wow. and that was where they would put their Christmas tree. Wow. So the, the poverty was yeah. what... they're lucky they me. were allowed Christmas trees. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, you know, uh, Poland... Was very instrumental in the Cold War, mm-hmm. and, and they two two beacons of light I can think mm-hmm. of, C- mm-hmm. uh, you know, Karol Wojtyła, Pope John Paul II, and also uh, Lech Vollenza.
5: Yes, I know both names very well. Like Karol Wojtyła, who was born in a little town in southern Poland called Wadowice, and I have a family connection to Wadowice in that the monastery in Wadowice was founded by my great uncle, who was eventually canonized by Pope John Paul II with my great uncle, the brother of my great-great-grandfather, is Saint Raphael Kalinowski. who was the hometown saint of Karl Wojtyla, who eventually grew up to become Pope John Paul II.
4: You know, I think also one of the most beautiful moments in from that time period was the fact that the Soviets had hired a Muslim guy mm-hmm. to assassinate Pope John Paul II, and he was shot, but he, he survived. But... Uh, you can find photos where Pope John Paul visited the guy in prison and, his,
5: and, and, and in, at his in his hospital room right too. yeah and
4: so they i think were fairly you know friendly obviously and, and Pope for, forgave Paul, him
5: he, he forgave him it yeah. was important to him to forgive the man that shot him yeah that that's, and that's
4: you don't see that too much that,
5: that's a that's a very moving right. moving thing it says something about him as a human being
1: teach the children quietly for sunday
5: sun.
4: New Year's Day was an epic song for Irish band U2, and as it turns out, the song had a connection to that other Polish beacon of light we just mentioned, Lech Walesa. An ultimate American U2 fan lets us in on the story behind why all was quiet on New Year's Day.
3: It was their first international hit. It was released in 1983 off their war album. It was their first single released. It was actually not even uh, originally slated to be the first single they released. They were going to release Sunday Bloody Sunday, (laughs) but their uh, UK record company, Island, thought that releasing Sunday Bloody Sunday as the first single for the album could be a little controversial because, uh, you know, it hit a little bit too close to home. Sunday Bloody Sunday is actually about an event called Bloody Sunday, where Uh, British Army opened fire on unarmed civil rights protesters in Belfast. The company thought it would be best not to open with that single. After much heated debate, uh, the band agreed to release New Year's Day instead. The song was originally written for Bono's wife. It started out being inspired by his love for her, but after learning about the Solidarity Movement and Lech It turned into an homage to him.
4: So for folks who maybe don't remember or or weren't around during that time, who was Lech Walesa?
3: He was just a regular blue-collar guy from uh, the Gdansk shipyards in Poland. He was an electrician, and somewhere along the lines, he started a revolution.
4: I, I guess I should say that, again, for folks who don't know, Poland was not ruled over by the Poles. They were they were basically a puppet state of the Soviet Union and had been so since 1945.
3: Right, and this guy, Walensa, he started the ball rolling. They were striking for workers' rights. In August of 1980, he led the Gdansk shipyard strike, and that opened the door to labor uprisings nationwide.
4: Now, this is a communist country, which supposedly is you know, the Workers' Party and all that, that's the, at least the propaganda. What kind of rights did they not have for him to have to like risk their lives to protest against the Communist Party at that time?
3: They were absolutely banned from organizing independent labor unions. A lot of the underground unionists were being spied on by the authorities. There was violence involved on the part of the authorities and many workers were even killed during this time. <laughs> the authorities were forced to negotiate with Walensah, The Gdansk agreement of August 31st, 1980 gave the workers the right to strike and organize their own independent union. This did not last very long. It actually ended um, in December of 1981, when the authorities imposed martial law and actually suspended the solidarity movement. Many of the leaders were arrested, that included Lett Walenza. Um, He was placed on house arrest Separated from his wife and his family. He was located in a remote spot of Poland. He was released in November of 1982 and he was reinstated in the Gdansk shipyards. Although he was kept under surveillance, somehow he managed to maintain contact with the Solidarity leaders. personally, and like Melenza in the in the song New Year's Day, you know, Bono's kind of on tour. He's the, the band U2 is becoming this big international band. And keep in mind, he's a newlywed. So he's separated from his wife very often. And I guess in this sense, he could feel some compassion and some empathy for like Malenza, I guess on some level where he's interned separated from his wife and his family for almost a year.
4: So the whole incident between Lech versus the Communist Party, did it have a happy ending?
3: It did. He was actually democratically elected president of Poland in 1990, and he served as Polish president from 1990 to 1995.
4: And that's amazing because the Yalta agreement in World War II between Franklin Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin was that they would allow all the countries in the Eastern Bloc to have free elections and they never did so that's a dream deferred until what 40 years later
3: right and it's just it's amazing that this guy he did not have a formal third level education he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1983
4: when he was behind the Iron Curtain still
3: yes in fact he couldn't leave to accept the, the award he was um, afraid that he would be exiled and that the authorities wouldn't let him back into Poland. His wife went in his stead, and she accepted the award, um, which was actually aired on Radio Free Europe. But the interesting thing was that the communist authorities tried to jam the broadcast. Oh.
5: They
3: were that afraid of this guy.
2: mi pokoju,
4: dlatego siły fizycznej. I think maybe we discussed earlier that uh, Luenza not only still alive, but also still in the news and still sometimes causing problems for authority figures. President Obama had scheduled a trip to Poland. I, I, this I couldn't find out for sure what the situation was, but Luenza either had previously scheduled or just chose not to meet President Obama, but he had went to some biblical festival in Italy instead of meeting the President Obama. And so some people took it as a slight. And then there was a presidential medal of freedom for a Pole who has been long dead. And so the government of Poland wanted to send Lewinca to accept the award on the country's behalf. But the Obama administration said no, that Lewinza was too political. So some saw it as payback for you know not meeting with him before. The critics pointed out that one of the medals that was given out on that particular ceremony was actually given to like a radical socialist, like totally political. So it probably wasn't exactly too political. It was just maybe the wrong politics or maybe just slight. But more recently, I don't know if that hatchet has been buried or what, but President Obama did mention Louisa in a speech about his work uh, fighting the, the Soviet Union and stuff. So maybe they've made peace. I'm not sure. I find
3: it unbelievable that the the White House administration finds him too political. Especially to be shunned for accepting a a posthumous award for a fellow Pole. An award the Medal of Freedom of all people.
4: So in the end, the song was like a big hit. It was. It was
3: U2's first international hit. It put war on the charts. Uh, War Roast number one the week of its release. Yeah, and just to close, really interesting factoid about New Year's Day is, uh, as it was released on New Year's Day 1983, it was actually the same day that the Polish government suspended martial law, New Year's Day in 1983. So, of course, Island Records kind of took off with that. Their marketing department had a field day. They marketed the single, um, three different formats. The standard seven-inch EP, they released a double issue and also a 12-inch single which um, the double issue and the 12-inch single included three live tracks on it in addition to new year's day and the b-side treasure bono claims this wasn't even a political album that it was more of an emotional album he said a song like new year's day might be about war and struggle but it's also about love it's about having the faith to break through and survive against all the odds And he goes on to say the album is about the struggle for love, not about war in the negative sense.
4: be a crude obnoxious nouveau riche little fleeb. and now we'll end on a lighter note where a nice bullied kid tells of how he finally pulled out his ultimate weapon to take down his adversary this one kid from elementary
0: school he used to always give me a hard time bully me what was his name he's got the ultimate bully name I think of all bullies names his name was Stony Passmore <laughs> it sounds made up it's not made up it's so <laughs> real I don't know if that was a nickname, I, he may have had a, no a Christian name first name, yeah, but yeah. he was just mean, always shaved his head, <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't
4: nice. <laughs> so what did he do to you?
0: Uh, he would just always call me names, pick on me out on the, the black top is what we called it, just typical bully stuff, you know. But it, Why did he focus on you? I can take, it takes a lot to really upset me. So. Yeah, thick skin. Uh, definitely. So, you know, I I can take a little bit of it. And, I mean, he was relentless if I remember correctly. He I mean, was just, you know, just always just dump stuff about weight and whatever. Mm. Finally, I just had enough. I forget what he called me. Something not very nice. We were playing soccer, I remember, out on the soccer field. And I just unloaded on him with just the worst, most insulting burn I could possibly think of. In my little elementary school mind, which was, <laughs> when your mom goes to the bathroom, she smells up the entire house. Oh man, you're harsh. That's what I came up with. <laughs> wow. And how do he take it? He started crying. No kidding. Like a little. <laughs> it was. <laughs> awesome. He totally just right on the right on the soccer field started crying and yelling at me no she doesn't (laughs) maybe she really does and she has like some kind of colon problem i was gonna say apparently i uh touched a nerve (laughs) after that he didn't mess with me anymore so wow (laughs) i knew i'd let him have it yeah (laughs) you're you're a nuclear bomb (laughs) well his mom a nuclear bomb (laughs) What it was. How many more of those you got saved up? I don't know. You better not cross me, though. (laughs) There's no telling what I'll come up with.
1: (laughs)
4: Looks like it's 1159 of December 31st, 1989 again. But we'll be back. And be sure to check out our other series, Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster. I want to thank my guests on this episode, including James Boyer, Sergio Guerra, Elonka Dunan, April Tinsley, and DJ Minddub. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Spung Counter Guy and if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Wood Pile go to spungcounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone and we are now on iTunes just do a search for Back by the Wood Pile on the iTunes store and we should pop up and a special thanks to the Brofisticate.com.